You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... We will apply unprecedented financial pressure on the Iranian regime. The leaders in Tehran will have no doubt about our seriousness. Sanctions on Iran and now Venezuela, but do they ever really work? My guests Samira Shackle and Stephen DL will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the difficulties of prosecuting surviving members of Islamic State, the perils of printing the truth in Pakistan, and... What would you do with a Melbourne tram? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle, freelance journalist, writing for New Statesman, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle and Monocle, and Stephen Diel, the writer and broadcaster. Welcome both. And we start in Venezuela, where recently re-elected President Nicolas Maduro is not having to spend much of his new term replying to congratulatory telegrams from his fellow heads of government. At least 14 countries have recalled their ambassadors in protest at what they say was a fixed election, and the US has imposed still further new sanctions on Venezuela, accompanied by President Donald Trump, demanding a new election. There's an idea. Um, Stephen, in in general, uh, are we fans of sanctions as a a coercive measure? I I, I will confess myself to being a sanctions sceptic. I think I would agree, actually, being a sanctions sceptic. But it's a way for governments to show that uh, they don't approve of of what's happened. Um, I think, though, this in this case, um, Trump taking out sanctions against Venezuela, um, it it's, it suggests a number of things. It, it suggests one thing: you know, Trump is is actually something of a bully um, because. You know, it's an easy target to say the day after the election, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a little country in South America. Oh, let's take out sanctions. Let's show them that, you know, we believe in democracy and so on. Um, I, I contrast it with the uh, uh, Trump's reaction recently to the Russian election. And there are certain similarities between Venezuela and Russia, funnily enough, even though they're different sized countries. But um, the type of uh, regime is similar. Uh, What did Trump do? He rang and congratulated Putin. Um, He did, of course, introduce sanctions later on for other matters after the Skripal affair. But it just struck me that um, this is, you know, this is an it's an easy target for Trump. And just to say straight away, oh, yeah, let's let's wade in with sanctions. And of course, the problem is that taking action, some an action like that against Venezuela does push it closer to countries like like Russia or China or Iran or Turkey, uh, which have similar pretty hardline regimes. Uh, Samira, is that all sanctions really are? They are a way for the people imposing the sanctions to demonstrate their, their high, well, their perch on the high moral ground rather than actually accomplish anything. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a sanction sceptic mostly since having reported from a few countries which were under them. And I remember being especially struck by a, a, someone I met in Belgrade in 2000, just before the overthrow of Milosevic, who said the effect of Western sanctions on Serbia's people, he said it's essentially like locking us in a cage with a maniac. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's um, that's the thing. It, it, it sort of runs a very big risk of obviously having massive impact on uh, on people, on regular people, and that's usually the ones who don't have very much money. Exactly, and that's one thing um, the Trump administration has really emphasised. You know, we're not um, putting direct sanctions on the oil industry because that would affect Venezuelans. But of course, there's a whole host of other measures, and these and sanctions that have just been announced are only the latest ones. Of course, those are all going to have uh, an effect on regular people and there's uh, the kind of been various academic studies about sanctions and their effectiveness which is basically I think the the general uh, the general finding is firstly that they're they're not not effective unless um, unless they're paired with uh, kind of like uh, conciliatory measures as it were sort of giving people giving governments a way out so if you and look at Iran, as well instance, as the stick exactly and in that case it's very hard i think to to rule out the argument that it could be primarily the carrot rather than the stick that's effective but they also do have an impact on uh, kind of hardening views in populations and and kind of um entrenching polarization and those all those sorts of things that you would associate with economic difficulties yeah it's exactly this is what they do it is it is ultimately the the, the poorest who uh, who suffer the most and not only that but it, of course it encourages the black market and those who are, you know it's not the poorest who are able to uh, to utilize the black market so in fact no if you if, you, if you've got if you have ready cash and hard currency you can always get anything you actually want yeah and and it, therefore it just it, it it makes society's problems even deeper now is the idea that well therefore people will rise up well if that's what you're thinking i think it's a little naive um Oh, five minutes ago, I thought I'd be the lonely one here as a sanctions sceptic. This is this is this is quite exciting. Um, the sanctions actually looking specifically at the case of Venezuela, and actually looking, I think, at the case of certainly the hardliners in Iran. It 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 works for them, doesn't it? It works for tyrants. Sanctions and the blockade kept the Castros in power for decades in Cuba. Yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of same argument of entrenching polarization, and uh, you know, it's certainly not going to make. Uh, it's certainly not going to make a kind of struggling public more sympathetic to being conciliatory towards the Western countries imposing the sanctions that are making their life miserable. It gives tyrants and dictators a very easy target and scapegoat to to blame for all manner of problems in the country, I think. So, yeah, I think we have to take it with a large pinch of salt. But there is this kind of urge in international uh, diplomacy and geopolitics a lot of the time to kind of um, look as if you're doing something, this kind of politics of the gesture. Something must be done. This is something, therefore, we must do it. Um, <laughs> Stephen, is it not the case that someone like you know Maduro in particular, a rather you know ridiculous and feeble creature presiding over a, a thoroughly collapsing country? I, I think the regime in Iran is less vulnerable for all sorts of reasons, but Maduro would be terrified, wouldn't he, if every other country in the world just suddenly switched to open engagement with Venezuela, just sort of <laughs> by all means import our goods, import our you know. Import Import our art, import our culture. Let's see how you stand up in the free trade of ideas. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there there is that to it as well. You know, he th- these people like Maduro and Putin and Erdogan, and actually, it it, it rather suits their narrative to, uh, to to say, well, look, the rest of the world is against us. So, um, you know, you know we're, therefore we, we've got to put up with um, with hardship, and uh, we will call on our friends, the, the aforementioned countries. Um, but you know, ultimately, unless you get um, a popular revolution, and I'm certainly not calling for a popular revolution, um, uh, then well, you know. What, but it, the it, argument it, there as well, which I which I kind of agree with, is that popular revolutions are generally carried out by people able to think further ahead than worrying about what they're going to eat today. 
Um, only to a point. Um, certainly looking at Russia 100 or so years ago. Um, that was, was a middle-class revolution, wasn't it? They mm. always are. No, but there were a lot of people who did actually, who you know, who were thinking about what am I going to eat tomorrow and who did uh, get caught up in it and uh, and did go on the street, certainly for the February Revolution. Um, the, the I would argue the October Revolution, which brought the Bolsheviks to power, was rather different. But the February Revolution was a genuine popular uprising because people were starving. Um, that's an element of it. Others people took advantage of it. But um, no, in, in, in Venezuela, I mean, you know, God, they've got their problems anyway. So um, Trump is probably uh, fairly low down on their list when it comes to looking at their problems. Uh, Samira, just to return finally to uh, Venezuela, um, Nicolas Maduro has been re-elected. There's all sorts of obvious doubts about the legitimacy of both the vote and the turnout. But nonetheless, there is no doubt that many millions of Venezuelans did go out and vote for him. I mean, can he claim a mandate? Is, is he entitled to say, you don't have to like it, but I'm what the people chose? I think the context makes it quite hard to claim a genuine mandate. And um, I think it was less than half the population voted because lots of people abstained. That it's lots not of, that uncommon, unfortunately. Of, but, but it was as a kind of quite direct result, not just a kind of voter apathy, but a direct result of opposition uh, parties being banned and leaders boycotting the election and so on. So I think it's quite difficult to claim an uncomplicated mandate, certainly. Okay, well, let's move along now and look at Iraq, uh, which, having more or less completed militarily evicting Islamic State from the country's territory, now faces the conundrum of dealing with those members and associates of IS who are now in Iraqi custody. Early indications are that Iraq is not persuaded of the merits of the interminable and punctilious judicial processes demonstrated at Nuremberg and The Hague. More than 40 foreign women, mostly the widows of Islamic State fighters, have been sentenced to death after hearings lasting no longer than 10 minutes a time. Um, Samira, first of all, there is obviously not... Well, it's obviously unlikely that there will be a great deal of sympathy um, in Iraq or elsewhere for these women, should there be? Uh it's a really interesting question. So I was actually in Iraq uh, last year and I did some reporting around um, the this kind of transitional justice process. Uh, not, I wasn't really looking at foreign fighters so much, but at the families of uh, ISIS fighters uh, and actually more generally of people who just lived under ISIS control. Because obviously there's huge, huge numbers of people who were just living in Mosul and didn't escape or whatever. And, and, and there's no real way to prove... The Iraqi uh, courts do seem to be making a distinction between people who just happened to be there and, you, and they, there's an excuse versus people who decided I'm going to they Iraq. They aren't as much as you'd think, actually. Okay. They, they, um, so, so obviously, uh, if, if there's like clear evidence that you're a fighter, then that's one thing. Uh, the families of fighters are as a kind of guilt by association. Um, kind of that's kind of all over Iraq. Um, kind of widows and children and so on being held indefinitely in refugee camps that have turned into kind of internment camps. That's in Anbar province. Um, and also people like cooks, drivers, not not in direct combat roles, also getting death sentences. Um, there was a Human Rights Watch had a report where a judge had said, uh, well, the fighter wouldn't have been able to go out onto the battlefield had he not had the cook to cook his dinner the night before. Therefore, the cook is just as culpable. So there's that kind of thing happening uh, and a very, very broad brush. Um, and for instance, if you're a male of, uh, you know, kind of 
between the ages of 16 and 24 or whatever, it's very difficult, who was living in one of the ISIS-controlled areas, it can be very difficult for them to prove that they weren't, uh, that they managed to avoid active service in any way. So it's being definitely, the net's being cast really, really widely. And obviously the, the question becomes a bit more direct when it's about foreign um, foreign fighters because then there's a question for Western governments. But I think there is a really kind of general massive question about uh, how what the best way is of tackling this and and the kind of victor's justice approach obviously has huge risks of causing further recriminations when you're causing kind of whole generations of people to be really furious and not to heal those scars. But, you know, in a, in a context of a kind of very sectarian um, state that was already in a state of chaos before, it's easy to see how it's happened. Uh, Stephen, it's not just Iraq, of course, that's presented with a, a conundrum here because they have to, to deal, obviously, with the people who are accused of having committed crimes on Iraqi territory, but these people are, of course, citizens of foreign countries, European countries, uh, North and South American countries, Asian countries. What are they owed by the governments of the countries of which they are a citizen? Is it permissible for those governments to say to them, look, you bought the ticket and you took the ride? Which is what they seem to be doing. Um, whether it's permissible, I mean, this, this is a whole question of uh, uh, of what is justice? Um, it's very easy to sit in London in a cosy little studio and uh, and pontificate about what should and shouldn't happen when, if you haven't, uh, unlike Samira, I haven't seen the horrors on the ground. Um, so I, I'm sort of slightly reticent to, uh, to to say what should be done. But um, you asked the question about which the, the, the countries, um, whether they should actually um, uh, accept the citizens. I mean, countries have just said, they're not our citizens. We know nothing about you. Know it's up to you. You just you know you 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 bought. The t- they are saying you bought the ticket. Um, you deal with it. Um, and that's um, I don't know. It's a very inhumane approach on the one hand. We, we, I would I would hope that countries in Europe, for example, would say, well, okay, we'll we'll have them back and we'll we'll try them here. I personally just find the idea of mothers and often mothers with small children being sentenced to death after a ten minute hearing. Uh, inhumane, just brutal. I mean, um, without having seen it on the ground, but even so, I still think that there has to be room for a certain amount of humanity in all this, and you have to accept. Um, you know, as Samira was saying, you know, if uh, if they were the guys on the ground, and and you know, they they they, it was either co- cooperate with ISIS or die, um, and they might therefore they cooperated. Um, that's you know, that's that's one thing, uh, and 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 that's fair enough. That, that that they should be given a proper trial. The idea, this this whole idea of ten minute trials, surely is, is, is and mass absurd. trials as well. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but that said, Samira, all of which makes perfect sense in, in theory, but if an Iraqi government was to announce that we are going to undertake a, you know, a, a rigorous legalistic uh, accounting of this along the lines of Nuremberg or The Hague, mm-hmm. would there be any enthusiasm for that among the Iraqi public or is the general sort of mood at this point to hell with them? Yeah, the mood is definitely to hell with them but I think you don't necessarily need to be governed by that. I mean, of course, the in order to do a kind of, um, you know, sort of South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, sort of real public reckoning about it, uh, you need quite strong state institutions which they don't have in Iraq, of course. Um, so it's kind of easy to see how the situation's arisen but I do think it's probably storing up problems for later and that's kind of really across the board rather 
even just regarding the foreign the foreign fighters, you know, that's talking like thousands of people being sentenced to death. The two sentences that are available for terrorism related charges are life in prison or death. Um and so it's pretty uh it's kind of pretty large numbers. But of course, you know, the people are people are furious and that's um, that's a kind of reaction to that and it's a sense of wanting to draw a line under it. And just to add, just a last thought, in terms of the Western governments, I think when we have a, a the kind of context that British government certainly and I think other other European governments too were very much looking into ways of making people stateless rather than allow them to return from uh, ISIS areas, people, foreign fighters and people who travelled, I think we shouldn't really be surprised at all that there's a kind of washing their hands of them approach. But on the, the washing their hands approach, Stephen, it's not just the case that we, you know, that other countries might be seeking to either just abandon them to Iraqi justice or render them stateless uh, by way of punishment, though there is obviously that aspect of them. It's just that uh, who wants these people back? I mean, th- th- it's not unreasonable to consider them a security risk. Uh, that, that is true. But on the other hand, if they had the passport in the first place, you know, I, I just think there has to be some alternative to this uh, in, incredibly cruel uh, method of, of having mass trials or 10 minute trials and then saying, you know, death or, or, or life imprisonment. I mean, you know, life imprisonment. I still suspect that's about nine minutes longer than the average Islamic State trial. <laughs> well, that that is true. Um, uh, but, you know, if the, and we know that some women took part in the, uh, you know, in, in the atrocities, but uh, on the whole, it was it was the men. Um, and it, and the, the, these are women who followed their 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 men folk. And as I say, I come back to this idea, you know, that they've got children too. many of them have got children. Some of them are pregnant. Um, that, you know, if, if how is Iraq going to progress from this? You know, if 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 they if they then go on to you know if, if this is the way that that justice is going to continue in Iraq, then uh, where do they, where do they go next? You know, the, surely there is there there ought to be some sort of international dialogue, some perhaps an international court, perhaps that to uh, you know it's been an international problem. True so enough. why should Iraq just be solving it on its own, particularly in this way? OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Samira Shackle and Stephen Deal. Coming up next, another bad day for press freedom in Pakistan. Monocle has bureau around the world. In Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Toronto and New York City. In Hong Kong, our bureau chief is James Chambers. There's no such thing as an ordinary day in Hong Kong. On any one day, I may be interviewing a city mayor or having coffee with a hotelier or chatting with an interior designer and then trying out the latest bar or restaurant. And mixed in with all of this, there'll be some wacky or outrageous news coming out of China which deserves to be covered on the radio. So it's this variety that I really love about the job. Hear from Monocle's editors and correspondents on the stories that matter and the places that matter every day on Monocle 24. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Stephen Diel. Now, a week or so ago, former Pakistan Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif gave an interview to Pakistani newspaper Dawn. It was yet another demonstration of two rock-solid laws of journalism and politics. One, that the best time to interview politicians is after they've left office. Two, that there is no more reliable way for a politician to generate uproar by saying what they actually think and or what everyone knows to be the truth. In this particular instance, 
that the 2008 terrorist attacks on Mumbai were perpetrated by Islamist militants based in Pakistan. Since the interview ran, Dawn has become mysteriously harder to find on Pakistan's newsstands. Um, Samira, what do we know about the extent of interference with Dawn's distribution? Uh, it's not entirely clear, actually. I think it's the, um, the, as you say, the distribution networks have been um, have been uh, disrupted and it's not available as widely as it is. So this is the kind of really historic newspaper it was founded uh, at the same time as Pakistan was, so kind of very closely associated with ideas of the nation and the way Pakistan sees itself. So in It the, has quite a large international audience now does, as well, which does, must make language. the government more sensitive about I it, presumably. So. I think so, and it was, uh, you know, it's kind of... Um, um, yeah, it's very, very tied into the foundation of, of Pakistan as a country. And so uh, in general, uh, the print media in Pakistan is not censored as harshly as the broadcast media has been. And that's because um, it's just seen as less of a threat because f- there's very, very low literacy rates uh, comparatively. So the broadcast media is much more powerful. Uh, but these kinds of um, quite indirect uh methods of censorship so so not kind of going into an office and telling an editor don't print that but disrupting the distribution networks is in keeping with what we've seen in Pakistan generally it's, it's sending a message it's it well it's it's actually kind of very it kind of stopping the the thing getting into people's hands but it's not um telling someone don't print that content so it's kind of it's but it's censorship by other means so that very similar things have happened with some of the really big broadcast networks they've uh, been rather than um, been told you're not allowed to say this after broadcasting um an interview with Sharif, uh, mysteriously Geo News, which is the country's biggest news channel, uh, was taken off air. So they just, literally their cable transmission was disrupted. And when it was put back on, it was just on a random channel so no one could find it. So it was there, but it wasn't really available. And that that was the case until the the management of Geo reportedly kind of went tail between their legs and agreed it will be good in the future and not do uh, not show this disruptive content. So I think we're kind of seeing a similar thing here with Dawn. And it's very much in keeping with how the security apparatus in Pakistan likes to enforce it. It's messaging. But that being the case, Stephen, should should whoever is ordering uh, this disruption not be somewhat cognizant of what has become known as the Streisand effect? That the that the, the greater the labours you go to to avoid people finding out about something, the more interest people will take in it. For example, were they not uh, interdicting Dawn's distribution, we would not presently be discussing it on Midori House. <laughs> Indeed, I mean, I, I think you know it's very interesting that Samira said that uh, actually its its distribution is not that great anyway because a lot of people not only don't but can't read it. Um, so why not just leave it alone? I mean, this you know this is a, a much wider question, of course, about press freedom and um, it applies not just to, to Pakistan, um, but it, it you know it's one that comes around again and again and again. That that um, uh, do, do these are these people so insecure in their in, in in their leadership that they think that um, you know the word is so powerful? I mean, it takes me back to the days of the Soviet Union when Solzhenitsyn said you know that that. Um, uh, that the, the word was was the most powerful weapon that anyone had. It was even more powerful than um, than American nuclear missiles um, because it, it got the whole Politburo uh, up in arms and, and worried, even in, even when they hadn't read it. Um, so it's you know it it, it it does seem that this one will never be. Will, you'll never get through to all these people, and it's because of their own insecurity. If you're if you're secure, if you know what you're doing is right then allow people to give alternative views because you can actually then debate and you can show why you believe them to be wrong. Uh, but as you say, particularly as, you know, what what, um, uh, what was said was something that everyone knew anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, just, it, it just seems that, uh, you know, 
you just, as you say, you give it more publicity. But what what I don't know, and I'd be interested to, to know, is you know, is the online version still there? I mean, obviously, those who read the newspaper, if they don't read the newspaper or can't read the newspaper, they can't read the online. But is it available online still? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. It's a good question. I haven't heard that it isn't, and I think. Um it's interesting if it is because um, some of the other newspapers uh, in Pakistan who've been censored over similar issues, so the two things going on at the moment are this um, the former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, uh, who the military just want out of the picture ahead of the general election in July and a kind of big protest movement that's kind of grassroots movement by the Pashtun community that's going on, there's a kind of blackout on both and the other newspapers have been forced to take down various pieces and columns writing about either one of those things, so it'd be interesting to see if, if this still is online again kind of internet penetration is pretty low and particularly these uh, these pieces and these big newspapers that are being affected are in in English and so you know the not only is the literate population quite small the English speaking literate population is particularly small so you know it's question marks about how important it is <laughs> Okay, well, we shall go finally to Melbourne, uh, and anybody who has visited Melbourne, and anyone who hasn't obviously should, will likely have taken a ride on what is the world's largest urban tram network. I didn't know that until earlier, but there it is. That's a fact. Melbourne's tram network is the world's biggest. While the modern trams are unarguably quiet and comfortable, they have never quite acquired the cachet of the old W-class trams, unfussily handsome vehicles first introduced in 1923, and becoming for Melbourne roughly what the red double-decker bus is for London. An opportunity now exists to own one. Victoria's government is giving away 134 retired trams. Um, Stephen, first of all, do you want one? I'd love to have one. I don't think I could quite fit it in the in the back garden. But uh, and also, what they haven't made clear is, you know, if you want it, have you got to go and pick it up yourself, or will they deliver it? They probably wouldn't deliver it to the other side of the world. But but I, I, I think I think this is great. I mean, if you, if, obviously, if you go and pick it up yourself, there's a there's a limit to where you could actually deliver it to. It'd have to be somebody somewhere on the tram route. Uh, yes, unless you have a very large a low very loader big truck. and a very big truck, yeah, and put it on, put it on a ship and ship it across the other side of the world. But uh, no, I I, th- I thought this was great. You know, I hope that they've given you know uh, given some to transport museums. Um, but then you know the the, the, the opportunities are. are, are not quite endless, but there, there, there's lots of things you can do. I know someone in London uh, whose office is a former underground carriage. Uh, there are um, there's there's a wonderful um, model village at Beaconsfield called Beaconscott, and actually where you go in and, and come out where the, the shop is, that's an old railway carriage. Um, there's great thing, you know, you could have a restaurant, you could have a nursery, you could you could do all sorts of things. You know, the, it just takes a bit of imagination, and and people would get really excited by this. Samira, what, what would you do with a retired, decommissioned Melbourne tram? <laughs> were, were, were one to become available to you? <laughs> were one to become available? I don't know. I don't know where I'd put it in London. It's sort of space is quite a, is quite a commodity. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think they emphasised in it that that they wanted they particularly welcome applications from educational institutions and I think some of the things they listed as possibilities were cafes and classrooms and you could definitely do all sorts of things I mean it'd be quite fun if you're at school to be um, studying inside a tram well, I do wonder how, where, how you get them places. I'm excited by the idea because I, I, I like the idea yeah. of, of good-looking uh, items of transport, and some items of transport 
are good-looking being repurposed as as pieces of occasionally quite surreal sculpture. My favourite example in the world uh, is also in Australia. It's in central New South Wales in a town called Holbrook, which, and to understand why this is funny, you have to understand that Holbrook is probably about 1,800 kilometres from the nearest open water. And the downtown uh, of uh, Holbrook is dominated by the enti- almost the entirety of HMAS Otway, a, a decommissioned submarine. Uh, is, is, is just there, there is a historical reason for that, which I don't really have time to explain. But <laughs> it, it's just it just always makes me happy, sort of yeah. driving across central <laughs> New South Wales, and there's a massive, great big submarine for some right. reason. Yeah, well, of course, you know, a, a, a tram carriage is not quite as big as that. So um, I'm assuming that if not in Melbourne itself, and certainly in the uh, uh, the, the more outlying districts, that um, people probably have larger gardens. I mean, I, I just think it would be great. I mean, I, I in fact. I have a little garden office at the end of my... It's not a shed, it's a garden office. Mm. Um, and and I just think, you know, having something like this, which, it, yeah, if the, even if it's delivered free, it's going to cost a bit to, um, to to fit it out. But that would just be a great place to go every morning to... Yeah, that uh, would be great. ..to work, <laughs> you know, to... to you, you'd set up, you'd set up a, you know, your desk and, and, and bookshelves and whatever at one end and, and your computer and so on, and then you could have a little kitchen at the other end, so uh, you possibly even have a loo in there, so, you know, you could actually spend the whole day in there. Yeah. You've given this a lot of thoughts, do you? I have, I have. I think it's just a great <laughs> idea. I'm just, um, you know, I'm sorry it's on the other side of He's the world. He's just quoting from his application. To the, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, there is something genuinely evocative about about vehicles. Yeah. So I, I have friends in West Ham, in fact, who have an outdoor tiki bar partially assembled from port- portions of old a- uh, aeroplane. So oh, it's, it's wow. one wall is the is the the windows from a passenger jet. Hmm. It, 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 it works surprisingly well. Uh, we should say that all jokes aside, this is actually a thing that Melbourne is actually doing. Uh, the deadline is July the 6th. Uh, you can apply at victrack.com.au forward slash tram. Stephen has obviously started work on his application. <laughs> Samira, seriously, are you, are you going to throw in for this or not? <laughs> Probably not. I don't know, I might just about fit one into my garden. But again, I, I, I think the, uh, the the transportation to the Northern Hemisphere might be a bit of an ask. But never mind. Yeah. But yes, that, that website again, victrack.com.au trams, especially if any of our Antipodean listeners are tempted. Do please let us know how you get on, by the way. Send photos. We can describe them on air. Um, <laughs> that does bring us to the end of today's show. Samira Shackle and Stephen Diol, thanks both very much for joining us. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 